Hello, it's Cassie McCullough here with a special addition to a conversation we had on the bookshelf. Our recent book club episode, which you might have heard, was all about infidelity in fiction and why it's such an enduring theme we seem to return to again and again. Numerous books were raised during that conversation, as you can imagine, but we focused on two novels that are undisputed masterpieces. One was Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, written in pre-revolutionary 1870s Russia, about two doomed lovers whose passion leads them to defy the rules of the elite society in which they live. And the other was Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary, published in 1856, which is about a beautiful and romantic but also tragic young woman who craves for much more than she has and ends up with much more than she can handle with terrible results. As it happened, a recent guest on the bookshelf, Hugh Griffiths, mentioned that he'd just been reading these two great works and it seemed too good an opportunity to pass up. So here's a conversation I had with him. Hugh Griffiths, by the way, is Associate Professor of English at the University of Sydney and also the author of Shakespeare's Body Parts, Figuring Sovereignty in the History Plays. I began by asking him about Anna Karenina and what had struck him in his recent reading. The humanity of it and the tolerance of it, I think, it's really unlike a lot of what we might come to expect from 19th century novels, perhaps wrongly, that they are potentially moralising or that there's a kind of moral point to the story, something that, however realist they are, nevertheless, you're meant to derive a kind of cultural or political or social position from. And clearly Tolstoy's really interested in all sorts of things, you know, from agricultural systems through to political changes, through to family relationships. But in amongst that, it seems to me that he refuses to take a position very clearly on the situation in particular that Anna Karenina finds herself in. And that is really different from the treatment of infidelity in perhaps previous periods that I'm more familiar with. So, you know, Shakespeare and so on, where infidelity of a woman is treated as either a joke but or also something that potentially leads to tragedy like in Othello or you know, potentially in The Winter's Tale. But here it's not that at all. We have immense sympathy for Anna. Her husband is, to be honest, the only horrible person in the whole book. Everybody else might behave appallingly but we, we, we don't mind it somehow. We kind of follow through with them and we, we work out why they're doing what they're doing. But Anna just seems kind of uh, to be, I don't know if approved of is the right word, but but investigated, looked at and thought about in ways that are incredibly human and incredibly tolerant, if that's the right word as well. Certainly not moralistic. And that, I think, marks a shift in the treatment of adultery and infidelity in modern literatures. So this idea that it's no longer the subject of a moral story, but it's something that connects personal relationships with political and cultural assumptions and tests the limits of those. So we think of marriage as the kind of bedrock of a very traditional society. And for sure, of course, Tolstoy is writing in a, a Russia which is still pre-revolutionary, um, post you know the serfs being freed, but nevertheless a very traditional society. And, and so it tests the boundaries of these, this idea of a story where a woman is trying to break free of her quite dreadful marriage, to be honest, um, set up a new life with somebody who's 
also, to be honest, a lot more exciting. I defy anybody to read Anna Karenina and not fall in love with Vronsky because he's fantastic. I mean, terrible in some ways as well, but just very sexy. Um, but and and it kind of thinks about what what happens next. What happens next? And of course, it's tragic. What happens next? But it's tragic over many many pages, and those many many pages allow us to investigate her life in so many different ways. It's interesting to me that you find Alexei Alexandrovich Karenin so detestable and he certainly has some awful qualities. I, f- I felt a lot of sympathy for him because of clearly distress he'd had early in his life, losing his mother and being left abandoned. So his attachment to Anna was hyper sensitive. Also because the marriage was thrust on him. Anna's aunt had sort of tricked him into marrying her. So he was as much a victim of the social mores of the time where once a perception of indiscretion had been made that had to be followed by an offer or else calamity ensued. So he, to me, is interesting. I do also agree that the other Alexei, Count Alexei Kirillovich Vronsky, is very attractive and we keep being reminded of his wonderful teeth, (laughs) very straight and very white. But I also found him to be as flawed as Anna's husband-in-law. Yeah, I think, I mean, there isn't a character in this book that isn't flawed. It's an exploration of human flaws, isn't it, and where, and where they might take us. I suppose why I react against Anna's husband particularly is that the novel itself is searching for ways to become new, ways for Russia to become new. So the other story, you know, the story about essentially about agricultural reform, rather oddly, but it makes that interesting, is really a story about changing relationships between Russia and the land, Russian politics, the relationship between landowners and the people who work on the land. And in amongst that story is a real, genuine search to find a different way of living. And for me, the only person in the whole novel who just point blank refuses, I mean, for all the good reasons perhaps that you're saying, to really even think about finding a new way of living in the circumstances in which he finds himself is Anna's husband. And as a result, of course, he, he suffers. Yes, and that's in his work as well as in his emotional life where we see Levin, who is, the speculation is it's the closest autobiographical character of Tolstoy's. His learning from the land, learning from the labourers, investigating ideas. Yeah, he is, a, he is really engaging character. And I think that... One of the things that I really follow through his story is the relationship between his wife and his wife's family, who are very pious Christians, very pious Russian Orthodox Christians. And he's not. He's, he's kind of taken on board some modern ideas and he's kind of, kind of an atheist, we think. And, and yet he kind of moves towards a form of Christianity by the end of the book. And through a conversation with a peasant that he doesn't tell anybody about, kind of converts, it seems but somehow also refuses to tell his pious family that that's what he's done. (laughs) And I think it's kind of really wonderful. It kind of speaks of a total lack of ego almost, like a kind of, so there is this supposedly happy ending or there could be in some forms a kind of conventional happy ending that he somehow reconciles his radical social views with um, and his empathy for people who are in bad situations with, you know, the conventional forms of his family and the way that they kind of found empathy with people. And he reconciles them, but just refuses to tell anybody. (laughs) It's really fantastic. And and that echoes some of the other resolutions or perhaps lack of them in, in the novel. 
which I think tends towards conservatism. There's consequences if you don't follow what society expects. And it always seems to come back to quite a conservative position. And I think getting back to Anna and the nature of infidelity and the price that is paid for it, do you think that ultimately Tolstoy is saying from the second she had that thought about Vronsky, she was doomed? I think doomed, yes. I think uh, two things. <laughs> I think I wrote in my notes this. Anna is right, but she's, <laughs> but she's doomed. Yeah. So she's right to make the choices she makes, but she's absolutely doomed for making them. And I think that Tolstoy extends that paradox right the way through the novel, right through to like my favourite. I mean, there are lots of wonderful chapters in the novel, but my favourite chapter, unfortunately, is the chapter that leads up to her committing suicide. Because that's actually for the first time that I, when I was reading it, that I could see a kind of, aesthetics or a new form that Tolstoy is struggling towards in order to think these dangerous thoughts about breaking apart cultural assumptions. So what we see is Anna taking a carriage through a resolutely modern city and every little vignette that you see on the streets, whether it's you know two women talking to each other or a young boy playing down an alley or whatever she encounters on this kind of myriad. It's almost like, I mean, it reminds you of like 19th century French paintings of Paris, you know, that kind of very vivid urban life that Tolstoy is trying to grasp in that chapter as she goes through Moscow in a comfortable coach, we're told, weirdly. And she's looking at it and every single scene of this modern city reflects back on herself and her memories and some aspect of her character. And so what we see at that moment is an incredibly rich almost kind of proto-modernist view of what a character might be in a novel. So we're almost, I think, verging on kind of Virginia Woolf territory here in terms of this disparity between an inner life and an external world and an attempt to draw a line between the two of them in order to think about, you know, what is the impact of one on the other? What is the impact of the world on this kind of split-apart person? And it leads, unfortunately, I mean, to the extraordinary event of her, her, her killing herself at the station. Yeah. Yes. And the previous chapter, we've, we've, we've kind of been in on her thoughts where she said practically that the only thing that can give my life meaning now is if I die. There is yes. nothing else for me to mean in the world. Yes, and, and I take what you're saying about this verging into the truly modern. It's almost stream of consciousness. It's very fresh interior. I mean, I was wondering how much psychoanalysis he might have begun to read about because it is a person cleaving apart and she's not well. So there's a question there about does she actually have a mental illness or does she have some kind of personality disorder? But the other part of the question I think we're invited to ask as readers is, you know, what is the nature of the tragedy? Is it herself, her own nature, or is it the world, the time and the place offering her no choice, no compassion, no way out. Well, I think for me, at least it's the second, because I think time and time again, we see people who attempt to intervene on her behalf. Or um, in particular, we see people who are reluctant to meet her, because obviously that, you know, social mores suggest that you shouldn't pay visits to to women who are running an adulterous affair. Yeah, one woman in the family doesn't want to see her, not because she doesn't love Anna, but because she's worried what that might mean for her daughters. Yes. Yeah. But when these people do meet, 
then they have this positive response to Anna always. Because she's beautiful and wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And charming and witty and vulnerable. And pity becomes the word that is most often mm. used as the book moves on. Not initially, but as the book moves on, there's a sense of pity for her her plight, you know, where where she's situated in relation to the society, which she you know, she cannot escape. She can't be another person, and she is. She's a member of the Russian aristocracy. She's not going to be somebody else. So... I think is the situation that she's caught into. And I, I think that that's, that's what Tolstoy shows us time and time again. In actually some quite long, slightly tedious chapters, perhaps, where she's moving from one place to another with Ronsky and yet more people won't visit her and then more people won't visit her. Yes. And it is a kind of piling on. A compounding of, effect. Yeah. And, and at the same time, we see how wonderfully lavish their lifestyle is and how Count Vronsky has gone to such extremes to create a world where she can exist without her son, Siriosha, who mm. is her true love, you could argue, perhaps in this. Um, she's He's the one she never doubts her love for. And for me, that's the true tragedy, that moment when she's committed the affair it's commenced and she's, she realises she's given everything away, everything, her family, her standing, her son, and then she, for a flicker of a moment, doubts Vronsky's love mm. and his worthiness of her love for him and and the terror she feels in that moment, I, for me, is the absolute fulcrum of the novel because she makes a decision I must love him because I've given everything away for him. So she chooses to love him. Oh, my goodness. I'm always tearing up talking about that. But let's go back to one of the, I mean, there's comparisons and contrasts right through this book, the town and the country and the wealthy and the poor and, the, you know, all of that all the way through. But the starkest one, I think, is what opens the book and it's Anna's brother, Stefan Akadievich Oblonsky, also known as Steva, who's... Household is in confusion because his wife, Daria Alexandrova Oblonsky, Dolly, has discovered that he's been having an affair with the French governess. And it's several chapters until Anna arrives. And when she does, her second act after meeting Vronsky is to tell Dolly, forgive him, let it pass, live let him come back into the home and and forgive him his transgression. Much, much later, Dolly sees that her life is dull and loveless and <laughs> she regrets taking Anna's advice. She could have actually sued him for divorce and would be actually materially better off and may even have found someone she truly loved. That, I mean, firstly, the two siblings are the two adulterers in the whole novel, which is interesting, but Anna giving advice to another woman that she wouldn't take herself. Yeah, it's kind of, it's hard, I think, that beginning, because I think one way of reading it is clearly there's straightforwardly double standards going on here. You know, he's going to get away with it, she's not, brother and a sister. It's really straightforward. And who suffers for that? Well, Dolly. Yeah, it's a very clear double standard being illustrated at great length in this novel um, and in great detail. But I think there's, I don't know, for me, there's something else going on in what Anna's doing in that when we first meet her uh, in that household, which is something about being 
like relativistic, like not making absolute judgments about somebody. And again, she's, she ends up being wrong about that because perhaps Dolly should have made an absolute judgment and got the hell out of there. I mean, maybe that should have been what she did. But nevertheless, I think there's something about the novel that endorses Anna's position despite the consequences of it, which is something to do with like not making absolute decisions. Because if you make absolute judgments, then it's not going to go well either. Um, and there's something about that kind of relativism. Yes, this marriage isn't very good, but there are good things mm. about it. So why don't you stay in it? Or why don't you think about staying in it is, is the position, I suppose. <laughs> it's clearly not a position that Anna occupies herself <laughs> later on in the novel. But nevertheless, there's something about the underpinning ethics of that, I think, which is to do with not being so absolute. Um, the, the, the novel really endorses on many fronts, not just that one, but also kind of politically as well, mm. that it's not... It, uh, in the you know the landowner's search for a new way of working, every kind of absolute position he comes to it looks it looks stupid, and he has to find a kind of accommodation to you know his family's piety to the fact that the peasants are never actually going to listen to him. So I I agree that there's a kind of underpinning of double standards, and that Tolstoy is aware of that, and he's kind of playing that out right across the novel. But I also think that there's a kind of ethical position that Anna briefly occupies there, which is not unlike the ethical position of the novel. Mm. It's all about nuance and taking into account circumstance, which was fresh and still is. Mm -hmm. Shall we move to Madame Bovary, which I know that um, you also love as a book. It's a little earlier than Anna Karenina, so we can presume that Tolstoy would have read it. It was famous, of course, because of the obscenity trial after it was serialised in, in the French press and, and he was vindicated and it was published and became a great bestseller. What is going on in that novel? Are Anna and Emma similar? Um, I don't think that they... I mean, obviously, I think that that Tolstoy will have read Madame Bovary. It's, you know, it's uh, the novel of the middle of the 19th century. It would be weird if he hadn't read it. And he's nothing if not a kind of consummate artist, diligent um, artist. So it's part of the tradition. Um, for me, there's a, there's a kind of gap in the representation of the unfaithful woman, though. So well, everything we've said about Anna as kind of complex, multifaceted, a thinking really almost impossible thoughts about the relationship between her inner life and the outer circumstances that she finds herself in. Madame Bovary is a little more, for me, at least caricatured, and it's funnier, and it's uh, people in it are the object of satire, and there's less satire, I think, in, in Tolstoy. Is there the similar meditation, do you think, on the changing morality and philosophy of the time. I do think that. I think that what Madame Bovary does and why it kind of marks that moment in the middle of the 19th century is that it sparks that thinking about social customs. And infidelity is perennially a really good way of thinking about the relationship between like human drama and the social context within which we find ourselves. You know, if marriage is a bedrock of society, if it's understood as that then infidelity is a human drama that connects really directly to our social assumptions, what we think, how we think people should behave. So it obviously has that trajectory. And the fact that we have sympathy with Madame Bovary uh, is a kind of scandalous thing, I suppose, as a result. It is really different from periods that lead up to that, where, you know, in the period that I work with, primarily Shakespeare, um, women's infidelity is either um, a joke 
at the expense mainly of women, I would say, even though it looks like it's a joke against men sometimes. So isn't it funny, your wife's being unfaithful, you're an idiot. But actually the joke comes at the expense of women who are treated as necessarily faithless Unreliable. or untrustworthy and in need of policing. Or we see, you know, the dark side of that in something like Othello or Winter's Tale where male paranoia becomes something that motors an incredibly dark tragedy averted, of course, in The Winter's Tale, but nevertheless, you know, people die along the way. So there's a big difference, I think, from the way that infidelity is thought about in earlier periods, like the Shakespearean period. It's still thinking about what it means in terms of social structures, but it's being used in stories to shore those up, to make to make them work. Um, I don't think Flaubert's doing that. Um, you know, he's looking at this and thinking about what are the limits of the society in which we find ourselves, and is this a way of testing them? by following the life of Emma uh, through, through her various, various stages. The text that I'd actually most compare Tolstoy with is, is kind of near contemporary with him, and that's Ibsen's Doll's House. Oh. So Ibsen's Doll's House comes out a year after um, Anna Karenina, and um, fa famously, Nora abandons her husband mm -hmm. at the end of that play. And it's not to do with in sexual infidelity, but she's deeply faithless in terms of like monetary cheating. So there's a kind of cheating going on. And famously, the idea is that, you know, the door that she slams as she leaves the play is the door slamming that echoed through European society. Um, because it was so scandalous, this idea of an open-ended drama that allows a woman just simply to get up, leave the stage... With no consequences. ...and not come back. I really hate modern versions of it. There was one in Sydney a few years ago which had, what happens to Nora after she leaves? And I'm like, no, the point, <laughs> the point is that we don't know. That yes. it's, you know, it's up to her. This is the moment at which she takes control. And part of taking control is that we no longer monitor or we can't know what she does after she leaves. Yes, because she's passed from her family father's house mm -hmm. from her father's hands into her husband's and that is her life until yeah. she takes this chance and walks out the door yeah and just leaves the stage for us watching in the audience mm -hmm. and obviously that's Anna Karenina can't do that in a novel that's not possible but nevertheless there's something about those two moments I think of Anna in the city at the end of the novel as we've described and Nora just like getting up and walking out that really doesn't just test the limits anymore of the social structures within which these women find themselves, but breaks them. Hugh Griffiths, Associate Professor of English at the University of Sydney and author of Shakespeare's Body Parts, Figuring Sovereignty in the History Plays. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.